question I have for you as we start today, and I want to read it out of the book that we are going to be discussing. Can a Christian stance on immigration ignore the vast material in both testaments concerning the outsider and be reduced simply to the issue of legal standing or economics or other social concerns? That's going to be the topic, because I think a lot of times as Christians, maybe we, we jump quickly when it comes to immigration on what we hear on national news, what our political party stands for, what our parents or our friends or our community is talking about, and maybe not informed as much as we should be from the biblical perspective. And so in today's conversation, that's what we're hopefully going to be looking at, or that's what we are going to be looking at, and hopefully helping you understand what does God's word have to say about immigration? And how can we, again, as this show, if you're joining for the first time, my name is Ryan Pauly, and this show is helping you know, defend, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview. And so this is an aspect of living out in our culture, faithfully living out as Christians. How do we deal with those coming into our country and the laws that are created that needs to be informed based on a biblical worldview, based on scripture first. And so that is the goal that we're going to be looking at throughout this discussion. So joining me to have this discussion is Dr. Daniel Carol Rodas. He is a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. He's also an adjunct professor at El Seminario Teológico Centroamericano in Guatemala. So, uh, Danny, thank you so much for coming on and joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, as we were just chatting just a little bit before, I spent five weeks in Guatemala in language school, learning Spanish to then go off to the Dominican Republic, firstly realizing how vastly different Guatemalan Spanish and Dominican Spanish are and is hard to understand. But I was in Antigua, which is about, was it like 30 minutes or so from where you're at in Guatemala City? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just that's right. And uh, it's, a, it's the old colonial capital, so it's a beautiful place. Beautiful city, walked around the whole place, it took tours mm -hmm. up to Lago Atilan um, mm -hmm. and, and other places, got boat rides, hiked a vol active volcano. Uh, I loved my time in Guatemala. My Guatemalan family that I lived with was wonderful. Um, can't say enough about that. So um, awesome. Well, you are a professor of Old Testament. And so uh, one thing I loved as I looked through your book and I've heard other interviews is, is the approach, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, of, of Scripture first. What does the Bible have to say about uh, immigration? And so first, I would like to kind of maybe address what is a question in my mind, at least, of uh, why is it maybe uh, that Christians sometimes jump quickly to, well, what are the laws rather than what does Scripture have to say when we talk about this issue? Yeah, great question. Uh, and I think it's just very natural. You know, um, I, I've traveled a bit. Uh, just the last couple of years, I've been in uh, Guatemala and Argentina and uh, the UK and France and Spain and, and Australia. And so uh, they're all dealing with these legal and economic issues. And so sometimes those are the ones that are on the you know, front of your brain uh, because, you know, it's there. And I think sometimes if we're to be kind of brutally honest uh, is that when it comes to bigger social issues, sometimes those are defined by our political party, whatever country you're in, uh, because we've reduced our, our, our faith and our biblical stuff really to uh, personal, family, uh, marriage. And uh, so sometimes when we get to the bigger issues, that's where our ideology steps in. And I think that's where Romans 12 is helpful because it says not to be molded by the world. And sometimes we're molded by the ideologies, left, right, and everywhere in between uh, of the world. So 
why do you think there is such a division, I guess, on this issue? Because I think you have Christians that are very uh, much more in favor of, of maybe a more of an open border, more in favor of immigration. You have Christians who are like, no, that's not the role. Why is there such, is it just the political ideology? Is it our, our cultural background, our family, family values that are, are shaping that? Or is there more of a, a, a deeper reason why that disagreement is, is very prevalent, uh, very common, I guess I should say? I think a lot of it actually is our political climate uh, because people align with a certain political point of view. And what will happen is left and right is that when our political party would disagree with um, the Bible, we make excuses for the party or we, you know, or we justify the party instead of actually focusing on what the Bible has to say. And so I think, Part of what we see in, in among Christians is how ideologically defined we are. Hmm. Now, both sides, both sides can go to the Bible and find some verses, uh, but I think both sides really need a more comprehensive understanding of what the Bible is actually saying. That's good. I accidentally just shared my notes with everybody, so let's go back to there. We go. <laughs> I clicked on the wrong thing, and you guys all see my notes. Um, good, and so that's what really what again I want the focus to be, and we are going to get into in this conversation some of the practical how to live this out faithfully. What are maybe some of the laws we might talk about that, but really again focusing on this central thing. If if you're not taking scripture into account, uh, how do we deal with this? And so uh, you kind of um, I guess in the book you start with with defining some key terms. Uh, because I think it's important because there might be different groups that we're talking about and maybe some different rules apply to those groups. And so you, you talk about the difference between uh, refugees, asylees, and immigrants. So can you help us understand uh, who these three different groups are and then why, um, why we might have a different approach depending on who the person is? All right, that's pretty good. Um, the three groups actually have different legal avenues. So when you're talking about labels, you're also talking about different legal constructs. So, for instance, refugees are people who are fleeing uh, oftentimes political unrest and uh, or maybe disasters, uh, floods, drought, things like this. But what they will do is that they will go to places and put themselves under the care of the United Nations. And so you've got these massive refugee camps um, in Lebanon, for instance, because of the Syrian war, or, or, in the, or in Africa, East Africa, because of what's happened over the last many years in the Sudan, for instance. And then what happens is the United Nations in these camps will then coordinate with host nations uh, quotas. So in this country, for instance, under the present administration, those quotas were greatly reduced uh, about letting people in. And so what that's a negotiation process between each government and the United Nations. The United Nations will vet those people in the camps, and then the particular country will also vet them. Now, when they come into the U.S., then, they already come in with legal status. And then they will coordinate the integration of these refugees, oftentimes with religious groups. So World Relief is an evangelical association. It's the... Uh, charity or compassion arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. So even their name, World Relief, I mean, what they do is they help uh, coordinate the integration of refugees into American life. That's very different from an asylee. Asylee is fleeing upon threat of life, usually by violence. And they will come to the border 
and they will present themselves and ask for asylum. And that will trigger a particular process because then what you have to do is prove that you are actually under threat of loss of life. Another category then would be an immigrant. An immigrant is someone who will try to pursue legal avenues established by whatever host country. And the host country will have its own way of processing immigration. So in this country, for instance, and most people don't know this, the U.S. system is built on a, on a series of quotas. And the quotas are per immigrant type. So unskilled labor, um, educated, and then what kind of education? You have a bachelor's degree, do you have a master's degree, do you have a doctoral degree? All these kind of things. And so it is processed very differently. So each of those three kinds of people are processed differently in each country around the world, but they're very different in how it works. And that's good to distinguish it because, you know, you often hear on the news, like there are the, the Syrian refugees that a few years back we heard a lot about. And then there are, you know, uh, I feel like in some of the presidential debates that we just had or, you know, you always hear about the asylum, you see people seeking asylum and, 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 yeah. and the process of asylees. And then you just have immigrants, people who are coming over, trying to immigrate into the country. And so it's important to kind of yeah. distinguish those things. Um, so then kind of uh, uh, we kind of addressed this at the beginning, I think, a little bit, but just to kind of reemphasize as we jump into the biblical reasons, like why is it so vastly important to look at the biblical perspective and what the Bible has to say on this issue before addressing the political and legal concerns? Yeah, I don't think the Bible gives us any kind of political or legislative blueprint. Uh, it's an ancient text. Uh, why would we want to replicate ancient Israel's laws? I mean, that just doesn't work. But what the Bible can do is define the baseline moral convictions that we should bring to the discussion. And the Bible can function as a moral compass in our discussion. And the thing that's interesting, and maybe we'll get to this a bit later, is that when you get to like 1 Peter, this isn't the only passage, but in 1 Peter it says all Christians are strangers in a strange land. So what you're seeing is that immigration and migration are actually becoming a metaphor for what it means to be a Christian. So we can unpack that later, but what that's showing you is how central that theme is to the Bible itself. And so as we look at the biblical material, we can begin to see how central it is to the plan of God and how central it is to how God actually will evaluate his people, both in the Old and New Testaments. That's good. Now, a question came in on Facebook from Lisa um, asking, you know, I, I, sometimes there's a, I guess the right way to put it is like, it's a difficulty when looking at Old Testament law of how much Old Testament law applies because we have New Testament, New Covenant, and there's all this kind of stuff. And so she asked the question, in light of the New, in light of the New Testament, as we're about to talk mm -hmm. about the Old Testament, do we apply mm -hmm. the Old Testament rules about immigrants and refugees in similar ways? Yeah, I would redirect the question, uh, because if we understand that what lies underneath those laws in the Old Testament are certain moral principles, then we understand that the law is a specific outworking of those principles in an ancient context. So the question then is, which I believe is true, uh, or I would say yes to, do those underlying moral principles cut across time and across testaments? And I think they do. Now, they look... They look one way in the Old Testament, and we're not going to repeat those laws. That would make no sense. I mean, 
ancient Israel was an agrarian economy, you know, a thousand years BC. I mean, that, that's not our world. So we can't replicate those laws. But what we have is some moral fabric and some moral foundations. And then the question becomes, what does that look like in the 21st century and in this particular country in the United States? It's the same question Guatemala is asking because Guatemala is getting refugees and, and people fleeing violence from El Salvador and Honduras. And if they've been following the news in the last week or so, there's been massive hurricane damage in Nicaragua, Guatemala, and Honduras, and massive flooding. And so what you're finding in, in those three Central American countries in the last two weeks is massive internal displacements of people. And so, you know, they're going to go across borders if they have to to survive uh, from the flooding and, and, and the landslides and all these things. And so it's a question of moral principle and not of imitating Old Testament law. And that's good. I mean, that's what we would apply to to much of the Old Testament laws. There's many objections like, you know, you, you don't wear, uh, you know, you eat shellfish, uh, but you say, you know, things like homosexuality or whatever, right? It's like we pick and choose. And really what the response is, is it's not necessarily the specific law, but it's the moral principle yeah. that guides it. And what are the ones that are cultural for that time versus what are the laws that are grounded in God's nature and, and consistent? So we see aspect of the Ten Commandments repeated in the New Testament. So that's a great uh, point there. And so uh, in your book, you start off, really focusing on the very beginning of the Old Testament, talking about creation and the image of God. And so uh, this is, again, I think something that I've seen recently on Facebook where we talk a lot about God's image bearers when it's abortion. Uh, but then, and it's not saying that we're only care about we're pro-life when we're abortion. I'm not saying that, but it's sometimes as we really focus on the image bearer when it's abortion, but when it's our governor, we don't recognize him as an image bearer and we will say some horrible things about him. And so uh, how is it that the image of God should guide us and direct us in this topic of immigration? You know, Ryan, I think you made a wonderful point. Uh, we pick and choose how to use the image of God. And again, what we're seeing in that is how ideologically defined we are. So we'll kind of you know, direct our use according to our political convictions, which is wrong. So, you know, uh, I just say if we're going to go to immigration, let's begin on page one of the Bible and work our way through. And on page one, you get the image of God. And, you know, the fact that we are the only creatures on the planet made in his image tells us that we're of infinite worth. The fact that he says that we are designed to rule and subdue the earth and to take care of it, chapter 2, tells us that we also have infinite potential. And if we can begin to put those two together into the immigration discussion, these are people of infinite worth and pre people with infinite potential. Now we can begin to ask, how can we facilitate all of this for the national good, let alone for their good? Now, how that works, it out, works itself out legislatively, okay, that's another question. Yeah. But there again, what you're seeing is there's going to be some guiding principles about how to treat those from outside. Do you punish them or do you appreciate them as the image of God and then you know, rework your laws accordingly? And I think that's such an incredible point. And this is really more the application where I was hoping to get to in the future, but I think it's it's true here is that, again, kind of with this political ideology and how we're so much driven sometimes by our political party is that we often recognize bad laws and how we should speak against bad laws and change bad laws when it goes against what we understand is biblically true. 
yet I feel, maybe I'm just wrong, maybe I'm listening to the wrong people, that in issues like this, we could go, well, no, it's just legal, rather than taking a step back and saying, but is this a good law or a bad law? And we just assume that when it comes to immigration, they are good laws and therefore defend them, rather than taking the step back like we do with abortion laws or, or marriage laws and say, hold on, this is a bad law that needs to be changed. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, several years ago, and it was called Christians at the Border. And that had a section on the history of law in the States, in the United States. And if people are aware of the history of immigration legislation, it's pretty checkered. Um, it wasn't even national until about 1875. It was, you know, in this country, we have this constant debate between federal and state law. Well, that was also the case with immigration law until about 1875, and that's when it became under national jurisdiction. And the first immigration law that was national of any scope was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. There's a history behind that. But that excluded any Chinese basically from coming into the country. And even if you were born in this country of Chinese descent, you were not allowed to be a citizen. And that law was not rescinded until 1943. And we can go on and on about the quotas against the Irish and the Italians because they were Catholic. I mean, this is the story of the United States. But I, I think what we need to appreciate, Ryan, is that this is the story of every country in the world. Uh, and the story of humanity is the story of migration. So this is not a new problem. It's not a U.S. problem. It is a global challenge. And it is the history of the world, which is the history of migration. Um, in any country you go to around the world, those are not the original people. Even the Native Americans in this country came from somewhere else. They migrated here thousands and thousands of years ago. This is the story of humanity. So it's not new. So that's what we have to appreciate as well. So your comment there makes me kind of think of the objection that you sometimes hear of like, but hey, this is our country. We get to choose who we want to let in. Like, we don't have to let people in. It's like, if it's your, my house, like, I don't have to let you into my house. And so what would you say kind of in response to that? Like, yeah, we had laws that didn't want to let people in for whatever reason, but you don't have to let anyone in. That's not immoral. Well, I'd probably answer it in a couple of ways. Uh, does every country in the world have the right to decide who can come in? Well, of course they do. And that's what every country in the world actually does. So... Yes, every country has the right to do that. The question is, uh, as a Christian then, is are the laws that control entry, not only control it, but how it is shaped and the values that lie behind those laws, can I agree with those as a Christian? So, for instance, if we understand, and the United Nations gives us this number, if there are over 270 million people on the move today, fleeing hunger, war, and ecological disasters, and all this kind of stuff. What does it mean to be a Christian? One of the values that you see across both Testaments is the idea of being hospitable to the stranger. So the question then becomes, uh, how do I engage the national laws? Do I agree with them or not? And the wonderful thing about this country, Ryan, is that if you don't like a law, you can actually change it. We do it all the time. Yeah, And so if, if the law, and again, we can get into the weeds on this if you want to, but if the law is outdated and inefficient, which everyone agrees on that one, uh, it needs to be changed. Now, how it's going to be changed becomes the question. And then as a Christian, 
does the change or can the change reflect our commitments as Christians? So another objection comes to mind of, yes, as Christians, we should love them and we should care about them and desire to be hospitable and help them. However, some of the people that are want to coming in are, are could be dangerous. They could be destructive. Yeah. And so letting them in could actually be more harmful. And so you have to be smart and wise about who you let in and who you don't. So 250 million people out there want to come in. We don't just open up our borders. Like, are you suggesting just open borders? Everybody come on in. Um, or is there a better way that we can go about doing this because hey some people can be and that's what you heard a lot with like the syrian refugees is we don't know like who who these people are yeah i think there's a couple of initial responses to the question and these are questions that i get all the time so uh they're fine uh, the first one is you've got to you've got to coordinate hospitality with wisdom so you know, can you let in 250 million people well of course you can't that's part of the wisdom. If we're going to be hospitable, what are the parameters of how that actually could make sense? So that's another discussion. But if you have the orientation that compassion will be the writing principle that needs to be coordinated with wisdom, that's one thing. If the idea is punitive and exclusionary as the overriding principle, that will lead to different kinds of laws. Hmm. The second thing that I would say is... It, you know, as a Christian, I believe in original sin. Every one of us, you and me, Ryan, we're sinners. Yep. Okay? We are. And every race, every color, every ethnicity has bad people in it. So do I expect a certain percentage of immigrants to be bad people? Well, of course I do. It's like there's a bad percentage or there's a percentage of bad people who are citizens in this country. So... Uh, <laughs> I think a Christian would say, well, of course, there are going to be some bad people. You expect that. So uh, that's being a Christian realist. So you know, that doesn't mean you just cut off everything as much as you can uh, and start labeling and all the things that go on. Yeah. It just means you're a realist, and that's why you have controls. That's why you have law enforcement, all these kinds of things. So all that needs to be put together for what is called comprehensive immigration reform. That's good. That's very, very helpful. Uh, Daniel here sent in a live question I want to jump to. Uh, asked, uh, what can we do to disarm or depoliticize conversations on immigration among Christians? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> it's I an know easy Daniel. one. <laughs> I know Daniel Montañez. <laughs> uh, we, we were on the phone uh, or a Skype thing uh, maybe yesterday. Oh, wow. anyway. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how do you depoliticize it? You know, that's going to be hard because people in this country are so programmed politically hmm. to the core. Uh, so I think it needs to begin in our churches. You know, if we can begin just to give some good, solid biblical teaching. And the other thing that I have found, Ryan, is oftentimes the discussions are in the abstract. But what I have found over and over again, once people actually meet immigrants and their families and their kids and things like this, uh, it, it takes on a different tone because now you, there's a human face to it. Now there's a name to it. Now there's a family. And I think that'd be, you know, some of the steps. And I see this with churches, for instance, that have immigrant churches, you know, on their church plant, like on Sunday afternoons or things like mm -hmm. this. Uh, th these kinds of things humanize the discussion. 
And so I, I think it's it's crucial. I don't think it's there's any kind of solution to it. You just keep chipping away as best you can. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, thank you for sending that question, Daniel. Um, and I think it's important to point out here as well is, is some people think that like when you humanize something, that then you're bringing emotions into it and it's and it's clouding you from having good judgment. That's uh, not necessarily true. You humanize something, you can still have good judgment, uh, but you're, you're bringing human. I think, again, Christians, I think, do the same thing with abortion. We're not just talking about a fetus. We're talking about a baby. Like we're talking about so-and-so. Here's this woman who, and, and it's just making it real. So we don't just talk about it in the abstract. But I think sometimes we, again, when it's with an issue that we're less comfortable with, we go, oh, no, 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 you can't, like, you're just using emotions. Like we want to stick yeah. to truth. We want to stick to facts. It's like, no, that doesn't take you away. It just makes it real. It makes it relevant to us. I think yeah, that's a good much point. So. I think you're right. I, I can just say amen to what you just said. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, I always like it when I throw in a random thought and, the, and my guest agrees. <laughs> I'm not way off. The, I'm not way out there. <laughs> Um, all right, so kind of jumping back, uh, looking at Old Testament, right? So we begin at the beginning. Uh, we, we, we talk about the image of God from the very beginning of the Old Testament. Uh, in your book, you give quite a few different examples of people in the Old Testament that can uh, help us understand, like Joseph or Daniel. Uh, we, we see, obviously, the immigration because of, of taking captives with the Babylonian captivity. How can we look at some of these examples in the Old Testament uh, to help give us, again, a, a perspective, a biblical perspective on this current day issue? Yeah, let me just give you a couple of examples and then uh, draw some thoughts from it. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm going I'm to assume that your listeners or people, if this is on screen or something, you know, know their Bible, at least at some level. Yeah. Um, you know, in Genesis 1.28, it, it just says that, that we are called to fill the earth. Okay, so how do, we, how do humans do this? Well, we do this by migrating. And then what you find is the migration actually begins at the end of chapter 3, where, where Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And, you know, it's not the kind of filling the earth that God would have wanted. But if you go through chapter 3 and 4, people are, are migrating. Cain is, is sent to wander. And then what happens, you know, in chapter uh, 11, God scatters the nations, right? Uh, and then what you have in chapter 12 is he calls Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. That's the phrase. Which would be in southern, south, uh, southeastern Iraq today, ancient Babylon, and he calls him to leave his country, to leave his family, to leave his culture, his home, uh, his inheritance, and migrate to Canaan. So what you find is that even the father of the faith is sent to migrate to a different place. And throughout the book of, of Genesis, the people of God are on the move constantly. They're what we would now call Bedouins, most of them. And even Joseph, he would be what we would call human trafficking. I mean, he's sold you know, into Egypt. Uh, you know, some of these things are as old as time. So what we find is, and I think this is important too, is that the father of the faith is a migrant. And the mission of the people of God Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, is to bless the nations of the world and through this one people. And then when you get to the New Testament, what does God say in the Great Commission? Go into all the nations. I mean, you can see from beginning to end, migration is not only a human reality, it's foundational to the mission of the people of God. Hmm. So you begin to read things differently. Now what happens then is that you can begin to appreciate immigrants as protagonists in the mission of God, 
and not just victims. Let me give you one example. In this country, there are tens of thousands of immigrant churches. Okay? And we have millions of people that have come up from Latin America who come from a Christian culture. Every major denomination in this country and the Catholic Church are holding their numbers or growing because of immigrant churches. So what you're seeing is that God is using immigrants to actually grow the church and give the church a future when the Anglo population in this country is getting increasingly secularized and anti-Christian. What you have now are millions of new believers coming in, whether they're African, Korean, uh, or Latin American, to revitalize the church and fill the church. And now you begin to have a very different kind of conversation. That's very helpful to, to, to think about. I mean, just again, it's a, it's a perspective change that begins to help us think slightly differently and consider what is the perspective of Scripture. And so another thing in the Old Testament that you talk about and that we kind of mentioned briefly is this idea that we are called to be hospitable. Um, what, could you kind of go a little bit more in depth into kind of what does the Old Testament have to say about hospitality? Yeah, the Old Testament is a very different kind of place. I mean, so you didn't have hotels. Uh, things like this. And so if you were traveling, which often could be very dangerous, you're basically at the at the mercy of being received by other people as you as you as you travel. And so you see examples of this in the Old Testament. I mean, an easy example that most people would know would be um, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 18 when 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 Abraham you know sees the three visitors and he welcomes them in. Now, in the ancient world, not only was there an expectation for the, for the host to be hospitable, which Abraham is, but there also was the expectation that there would be reciprocity in kind, so that if I accept you into my home, one day if I am traveling, you will do the same for me. So you, you get this kind of idea. So what you have in the Old Testament, then, is a, a predisposition to being welcoming uh, to the outsider. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, an invasion is coming like the Assyrians or something and you welcome them. Okay, that's a whole different kind of discussion. But you have this hospitable acts going on throughout the Old Testament, and that's the expectation of the culture itself. Then when you move into the New Testament, of course, being hospitable is supposed to be foundational to the Christian church and even becomes a mark of whether you can be, become an elder, a church leader. That's one of the marks. Are you hospitable? See, Paul will actually say this in several passages. So it becomes, again, a biblical value. So then the question becomes, how do you be hospitable in the 21st century? You know, I'm, I live close to Chicago. Okay? I'm not in El Paso. Okay? So how would hospitality look like in, in, in Chicago versus what it might look like in El Paso? See, now you're beginning to try to, 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 to give the biblical injunction some, some teeth and some practicality and that's the next kind of discussion. That's good. And, you know, I, a few years, about a year or so ago, my, my church read through um, Rosario Butterfield's book, uh, the, the Gospel Comes with a House Key, uh, all about this idea of, of hospitality. And it, there's just a lot of interesting things that she brings up as I think she was like a, 
lesbian gay rights activist or something like that. Uh, and then uh, had people be hospitable towards her and then what she was able to do. I could get that story a little bit wrong, but uh, very, very interesting just perspective of what hospitality looks like and how really I think it, it challenged us to think about how sometimes closed off we can be to neighbors like a lot of people in our neighborhoods like we live in our little bubble and and my the people that come into my house are not my neighbors necessarily they're my friends from church they're my friends from work uh, again that's not true of everybody but but you know how how i don't know, neighborly are we how do we, how well do we know the people who live in direct proximity around us in our city yeah and then what what happens is that you know you can keep it at the level of your home which is foundational. But then the question is, how can we be an hospitable community as a church? And there's all kinds of ways the church can do that. And then how can the church become a catalyst for hospitality in our community? So again, you're moving up the ladder, right? From personal to church community, to local community, and maybe to the state and then to national levels. Mm -hmm. So when the Old Testament talks about the sojourner, the, the, um, you know, the, the foreigner and that sort of stuff. Can we make a direct relationship to that with a, a refugee or something like that? Or, or what's the, kind of the connection there between what we saw and which the way in which people traveled and, and whatnot to what people are doing today? Yeah, I think that I go back to the idea of underlying principles. So if the underlying principle is to welcome the outsider, uh, you know, what legal labels we might give them, uh, you know, is kind of a modern thing. But the underlying value is still there. Now, what's interesting in the Old Testament, there are actually several terms used for the outsider. Some are positive terms, and there's at least one that's not a positive term. And so what you see is they're also making distinctions between the kind of outsider that, that they appreciate and the kind of outsider that they're going to keep, they'll, they'll let them in, but, you know, they're a little bit hands off. Uh, so, you know, the Old Testament's very aware of, of the different kinds of outsiders coming in. Uh, so, but what happens sometimes is that we try to find the same kind of terminology or same kind of legal structures from the 21st century, and then we go looking for it in, in you know, the ancient world. That's not going to work. It, that would be totally anachronistic. So again, the idea is the underlying principle. Do we value outsiders? Biblically, mm -hmm. the answer is yes. The question is, how do we do that? Where do we do that? And those kind of secondary questions. That's good. So kind of transitioning then in our biblical approach, starting the Old Testament, moving on to the New Testament, um, you know, what can we learn from Jesus? The, the Gospels don't directly talk about immigration. There's no direct teaching on immigration. So uh, do we kind of throw that out or is there still something that we can learn from the teachings of Jesus? Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, Jesus doesn't talk about immigration, uh, but what you see is that he deal, I mean, he's from Galilee anyway, so very different than the core around Jerusalem, right? And so there was this thing, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that was the saying of the time. So you're already seeing kind of prejudice. And then what you have classically in the, in the Gospels, are the Samaritans. And the Samaritans and the Jews mutually hated each other. And there's historic reasons for this. Uh, and so what you have, Jesus is engaging the very people that his people hate. And it's fascinating, uh, if I can take a minute, I mean, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, we kind of 
gloss over that. But if you think yeah, about we, it, we all know the story. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we all know the story. But the, the, the thing that is so interesting is it begins with a question, you know, good teacher, how can I inter inherit eternal life? Well, you know, obey God and, and love him and then love your neighbor. And then the question becomes from the teacher from the, of the law, well, who's my neighbor? Okay. That triggers the parable. So Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan. Now, we know the story. The Good Samaritan helps the Jew who's been injured. Then here's Jesus' question. Who is the neighbor of the man who was, who was assaulted? And that's the question. Now, the preceding question was, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Then Jesus says, who was the neighbor of the man who was assaulted? The answer was the Samaritan. So if the original question is, who is the neighbor I'm supposed to love? The implication is, the neighbor you're supposed to love is the very person we hate. Okay. Now the man doesn't say, he can't even say the word Samaritan. He goes, oh, the guy who helped the other guy. So what Jesus is doing is, he's telling his people, his followers, and challenging his countrymen, to love the very people they hate, tangibly. Okay, So that's how we get to the sayings of Jesus. And then, of course, when you move into the rest of the New Testament, now they begin to leave Jerusalem. Now you're going to begin, this may be another topic of discussion, now you begin to see how migration fits in to the growth of the Christian church, even in the New Testament. Yeah. So it, it, the idea is that Jesus doesn't give direct teaching on immigration or migration, but he does give direct teaching to different kinds of people that his people tended to reject and despise. Hmm. That's very good. Um, now, about every time, you know, it seems to happen about every every Christmas. And so Christmas is coming up. Uh, you often hear or see, you know, there's lots of, you know, uh, uh, manger scenes and Jesus is laying in the manger and you hear people say things like Jesus was an immigrant. And so my dad actually wrote in here and said, what's your response uh, when you hear people say, well, Jesus was an immigrant to, I don't know some, exactly what their point would be, in, but you often hear that trying to yeah. normalize immigration or something like that. What, what's your thought about Jesus yeah. being an immigrant? Well, I would, you know, if you want to use a technical term, I'd probably say he was more like a refugee um, because they're fleeing the threat of violence. And so you know, they go to Egypt and there was a large Jewish community uh, in Alexandria. So that's probably where they went. Um, so, you know, the technical term probably be more refugee, but here's the, this is where it can help. It really helps in two ways. One is if Jesus had this kind of refugee experience himself, Oh, well, maybe we need to rethink this. And the second thing is this, um, when you talk to immigrant churches, which I do, but on the Hispanic side, um, the fact that their savior actually had a refugee experience, as did his parents, to them, it, it, it's, it's another level of identification with Jesus. And the, the realization that, that God can understand what they're going through. And so I think that's how it, how it can function. It depends if you're asking if, you know, how the majority culture will look at it. The other thing is how a refugee or immigrant audience will look at it. Yeah. 
So, all right, wonderful. So I'm kind of moving into, um, I guess, the the biblical position against uh, immigration. So we, we talked, you know, trying to get this perspective of Old and New Testament, but oftentimes people jump to Romans chapter 13. And, and one of the things that we see there is that, the, the, the and you mentioned this in your book, you write, um, uh, the government is an institution different from the church. It has a different agenda, a different reason for existence, a different and different values and rules. And so I often hear this, and I've even used this argument, like in a sense of like, well, the government's role in, in Romans is protection and justice, uh, not necessarily grace, mercy, and hospitality. That's the church, that's Christianity. So how would we, how do we, I guess, uh, use this understanding of the government is di fundamentally a different institution than the church when it comes to now applying laws as well as a biblical approach? So I don't know, is there like, do we draw a line and go, here's the Christian response, but the government can have their things because their, their role is different. They're less hospitable because they're not the church. Yeah, I mean, you could back, basically what you get back to is the, the whole idea, this is, the church has been arguing this for 2000 years, the relationship between church and state. Should the church influence the state? And if so, how? Well, if you're, if you're Amish, the answer is no. And you go live on a farm in Pennsylvania and you totally extract yourself, okay? There is that Christian option. Yeah. Um, then you get, you know, the reforms, you see, where every inch of territory is under the lordship of Christ. And so you'll find people of the reform tradition getting very much involved in, in government and in trying to enact legislation. You know, then you get Lutherans who do the two, the two kingdom idea, but this would be Luther uh, and his descendants, so to speak, where the idea is you cannot have a Christian government, but you can have Christians in government who have a political vocation. So the question of what should Christians do and how should they relate to the government, well, it depends what kind of Christian tradition you come from, basically. But all of them in some way are trying to answer the question, what is the relationship between church and state? Now, if we want to totally withdraw from the state and let the state do whatever it wants with no Christian influence, you know, then you're moving into horror. Okay? But if we want the state to enact things to help the poor, uh, if we want people to, to help the sick, for instance, or even right now with COVID and all these kind of things, you know, we want the church, sorry, we want the government to have compassion, you see. So the question becomes, what do we want from the government? And then how do we want to influence the government? And what's the best way to do it? That's that's the kind of questions we should be asking. Hmm. So would you say, though, that as we look at, again, kind of looking at your book of like that there is a different role? Like, is there that? Uh, there's definitely a way in which I, I would agree, like that that Christians should be influencing policy, right? Because the laws that we create should reflect like natural law and reflect morality, which is founded and grounded in God. But is there a sense where we say, well, no, the government's job is to is for justice, not compassion. And if the government is compassionate, then maybe justice doesn't get. It. Or is there again a fine balance in which they're compassionate and just? And part of justice is helping people from other places. Or how does that work? If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, but that. <laughs> But that's the, that's the debate in the country, not only with immigration. It's like, what do you do with poor people? Yeah. What do you do with welfare? Uh, and so all of these are trying to adjudicate some kind of proper balance between justice and compassion. Uh, the fact that you have food clinics, the fact that you have food stamps, the fact that you have 
you know, lunches for poor children in the public schools. The government is being compassionate, and we would expect them to. Hmm. See, um, the idea of a nationwide, you know, COVID vaccine. I mean, so we expect the government to be compassionate, and we demand it. Now the question becomes, what areas are we going to work at so that actually happens? And what does that look like? And, and how do we somehow help that kind of process? Okay, that's helpful. Um, I got another question that came in here uh, discussing how some people, uh, Flora says she's heard some people use Acts 17, 26, where it's about God setting borders to say everyone should stay where they're born. Uh, how do you respond to this? So I, I pulled well, up Acts I, I, 26. I pulled up 17, 26 here really quick. Let's see if uh, I didn't set this up beforehand. Let's see if it works. Nope, it just kicked you out. Okay, just kidding. Um, all right, it says, uh, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So is this the boundaries of their dwelling place saying, nope, you are allotted to live here, stay there? Well, you know, that would be a very uh, surface reading. Uh, I'll just, I mean, I could make this a long discussion, but let me just give you an example. So if you want to go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus says for us to go over all the earth and to make disciples, you know, so that's going to violate Acts 17 on that kind of reading. Um, I mean, so that doesn't make, that's not what that reading is actually getting at. The idea is that God does this. See? I mean, there are certain kind of, boundaries but if you look at even the history of the united states our boundaries have changed over the last 250 years they've expanded see i mean so even in this country there hasn't been a set boundary since the founding of the republic hmm. so you know we we began with the, the colonies on the east coast look where we are now and then we you know we buy alaska from the russians we we win the Southwest because of the Mexican-American War. We have the Louisiana Purchase, which we get from the French. And then we have Hawaii. I mean, and for a time, what we had was the Philippines was under U.S. jurisdiction. And even Puerto Rico, because of the Spanish-American War in 1898, that's how we got Puerto Rico. I mean, so our boundaries have been fluctuating for 250 years. And so, you know, that, that Act 17 kind of quoting of the Bible is really pretty surface. There's a lot more going on there than, than what that person might think. Okay, good. I appreciate that. Um, another kind of qu another question came in here from Kendra, and, and it's something that, uh, you know, you hear about a lot, or at least it's in one of my textbooks, is this idea of like sphere sovereignty. I've, I was a Kuiper's idea or someone, uh, this, you know, the government has its place and the church has its place in the family. And so uh, what would you say kind of is a biblical approach to the idea mentioned here of, you know, should the government stay out of people's lives with the social programs and making every taxpayer pay into them and allow the church to be the ones to show the love and charity? So the government is doing these kind of food programs. Is it their job or should it be the church doing it as we saw in the book of Acts? Well, the only thing is in the book of Acts, you're doing it for the Christians. They're not doing it for all of Jerusalem and all of Judea. I mean, so, you know, so again, what, what we're seeing is okay, that makes sense at some level. But the church is not equipped to handle three, over 300, what's our population now? 350 million people, it's whatever it is. Around there, yeah. No, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, a, it's a question of scale. And if, 
if if we understand compassion is part of justice, and I think those are inseparable, uh, you know, that, that's why God has the government there. I mean, part of protection is protecting the well-being of its people. See, not just the safety, but its well-being hmm. and the prosperity of its people. And we and it's, it does this by economic laws. It does this by social laws. It does this by all kinds of means. The very fact that the government will build roads makes all this possible. I mean, so all these things are intertwined. I think the church could be doing a lot more as testimony, but to, to limit what a nation could do in terms of compassion to what the church does, well, what, you know, I was just reading something the other day. What if you're in Albania where the church is less than 1%? Okay. Again, what you're seeing is these kind of surface readings, you know, Life, life and history are much more complex, and so and the Bible is complex too, and it's and it's and how it describes reality. So what we need to do is appreciate the complexity that the Bible itself talks about. So would it be fair to address this in, in a way that's saying like that God has designed certain roles, and and one role of the church is to really take care of the people, uh, but in a broken, fallen world, it, it may not work perfectly. And so sometimes, yes, the government does have to step in, like you mentioned. If the church is not strong, the government does have to do things, but that's maybe not necessarily the way God designed it. But we're doing we're 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 doing what the best we can with what with what we're given. Is 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 there some truth to that? Maybe up to a point. But the assumption in, in the New Testament is that the church is always going to be a minority without power. And so what we do is we serve the national good and we serve our communities. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't somehow take away the obligation under God of governments to take care of other humans. If humans, all of us, are made in the image of God, then it is the obligation of governments to take care of humanity which means that is why governments have to answer to God. Hmm. You see, and so, you know, if the government has the wherewithal and it's given the mandate by its people to take care of other humans, uh, then it must do that. And the treatment of other humans will become a basis, not the only one, but will become a basis for the judgment of God on each nation in the history of the world. Well, that's man, it's making me think a lot about uh, different aspects of just different beliefs and thoughts that I have had and uh, over time. Um, now, we've been talking about a lot of practical stuff, uh, for sure, uh, as I've been working this in. But I but there are some kind of uh, practical questions as, as OK, now, uh, I don't know. Practically, what does this look like in different ways uh, that I want to kind of uh, look at? And so my first question for you would be, is we kind of talked about this idea of needing this immigration reform, uh, not necessarily throwing it all out and opening borders and say, come on in, everybody, but not necessarily closing it off. Uh, do you have maybe some uh, some examples of ways in which it's it's not working well that you can say, maybe these are things that Christians are not aware of that's in the immigration process that makes it unreasonable or very difficult that need to be changed in order to better help people that need it. Yeah, I can just give you a couple of examples, and there'd be many of them. What people don't, don't understand, for instance, is that the U.S. system, and every country has its own system, is based on quotas. Okay, So when people say, why did they come in the right way? Well, that already tells me they don't understand what they're talking about, because this is based on quotas. Let me give you an example. The national quota annually for unskilled labor is five to 10,000 people, okay? Now that's landscaping, construction, 
those kind of things. The estimate that I saw just a few years ago was that the country needed half a million a year. The quota is five to 10,000. That just shows, and these quotas have been there for years and years and years, and no one wants to touch them because it's a political you know, hot potato. But what you're seeing is that, that quota makes no economic sense. It doesn't make any economic sense for the country or for the immigrant. So that would be one way. There was a, there was a bipartisan bill that, that was in Congress, and it was ready to be signed, and then politics came into play. It was a bipartisan bill where it would uh, key the quotas to economic need to be visited annually. That is just common sense. And it was bipartisan. But now it's been so politicized, no one is even talking about the quotas, which everyone knows, if they know anything about uh, immigration legislation, are ridiculous. Okay. Here's another thing people don't know. Well, yeah, really quickly on that, it, it seems yeah. like that example is similar to like the way the businesses function, right? If I, if I need a computer programmer, I'm going to go hire a computer programmer. Yeah. You, you, know, you, you hire based on your need, and that is what mm-hmm. helps a well-functioning business is filling the needs that you have. And so that's why yeah, it seems and like that's you're why saying I, common sense. Yeah, and that's why a large percentage of people, for instance, who harvest our food, they're undocumented because we need them hmm. and they're here. Okay. Uh, let me give you another example of where people don't understand the law. Again, it's by country. Under current U.S. legislation, if you come in undocumented, however way you come, and over 40% of the undocumented came in legally. People don't know that either. They come in on their airports on student visas and tourist visas and just stay. Okay? So if you come in you know, unauthorized, once you're inside, under current legislation, there is no way for you to normalize your status. Current U.S. law is about entry. The only thing current U.S. law has, if you are here undocumented, is deportation. So there's no office they can go to. There is no form they can fill out. There is no fine they can pay. There is nothing that they can do to regulate or to to regulate their status and change it and get on the road to citizenship. There is nothing. That's why there's over 11 million people without papers, because once they're in, there's nothing they can do. People don't understand that either. So other than going back to their home country, starting the process and then coming back in. But I just told you about the quotas. And if you leave under your own volition, if they pick you up and, and they give you the option of leaving under your own volition, you have to stay out a decade before you can apply without any guarantee under the quota system that you can come in 10 years. Okay. You can see just how this becomes impossible. Yeah. And so you've got all this kind of laws that make no economic or moral sense. And people are are debating up here at 30,000 feet when on the ground, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, You know, I've had friends, undocumented who've been in process for years 
because the immigration courts are backed up. And I mean, I can tell you all kinds of things. Yeah. But uh, it, that's where you begin to see the need for immigration reform, politics aside, just for common sense. Yeah. And the thing is, this whole DACA thing with these, with these young people, that, that, that's the most common sense thing in the world. This is their home. This is where they grow up. You know, this is what they're, now they're going into college. The average stay of the undocumented now is a decade. They've been here for at least a decade. Okay? The mean stay. So these are people who've made this their home, and their kids are in our schools. You see? Instead of facilitating all that energy, all, all the brain power, and all the energy of these young people, that's to, to me is a common sense kind of thing. So you have all these laws that would take a long time to explain, but you can already begin to see it doesn't work. That's good. And, and I, something you mentioned that really spurred something, but a quick question came in um, about what you just said, a DACA. And um, Susan's asking, uh, was there a DACA bill which was recently killed by the House? Do you know anything about that? There's been a series of DACA bills, uh, and politics got in the way every time. Okay. Um, and depending on who was president, and here's the thing, the DACA wasn't a bill, you know, well, the one we have today, kind of, because Trump kind of squeezed it, was a, a, an executive order. It's not even a law, see, because nothing was being done for DACA, so what he did was, Obama, made it an executive order. That's why, you know, the president administration could, could kind of play with it irrespective of what uh, a Congress said, because it was not a law. It was an executive order. Yeah. And so so this is where the complications and, and where if people understand actually what's going on, they might have a different understanding of immigration law. That's good. Um, now, something you said there, and it's in your book, and I, I meant to bring this up at the beginning and, and I, just off topic, but I do think it's important. I want to make sure we get it before we end is um, – <sighs> Sometimes we focus on, well, I'm speaking truth as a Christian, um, rather than understanding how those words, when they come out, are interpreted by people. And I think you can take it to the extreme of, well, it's however you're interpreted it, you know, you have to always speak in a way to be interpreted well, but there's a way in which we speak that matters. And so uh, you mentioned this in your book, and, and you've done it this whole conversation, is you always use uh, the term undocumented rather than uh, an illegal. And, and there's a lot of people that go, well, they're illegal. They came here across the border. They either broke our law then or they stayed past their visa. They broke their law. So calling them illegal is just true. Why is it that you have not used the term illegal, even though it's technically true in a sense, but you've always used the word uh, undocumented? Well, I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. I think part of it is just the emotions that get uh, connected to the idea of illegal. And in this country, where certain people will associate immigrants with globally as violent and, and uh, unruly and things like this, uh, the undocumented, because that's what it is. It's, it's not like they're criminals in the, in, in the sense that this is their life. They've actually come looking for a new life or they're fleeing violence. Uh, and, and a lot of them have come with their children. So. What they lack is a piece of paper. So I prefer undocumented because that's really the problem. They don't have the documents. The other piece that, that, that I change is I don't use the word alien uh, in English, not in Spanish, for instance. You know, um, in, in English, alien 
has this connotation of totally other that will never be like us. And we actually use this for like creatures from out of space. We call them aliens. Uh, so, you know, kind of the, you know, one liner, if you want to call it that, is, you know, when can an, when can a, uh, an alien become a human being? You see? So I prefer undocumented immigrant uh, because that's what they are. I can't say undocumented refugee because refugees come in documented, you see. But I can say undocumented immigrant. So I prefer that. It seems to me closer to the reality. Technically, you're correct. They are illegal in the sense they have violated a certain U.S. law at a certain moment in time. Uh, but I put it into the larger context, and that's why I prefer undocumented. Yeah. You know, and as I was thinking about this and kind of talking through it with my wife before the interview, you know, again, the however you want to, whoever's listening and lines up on this issue, uh, the question comes up of like putting yourself back in like Nazi Germany, right? If a Jew comes up, technically that Jew is breaking the law or whatever, if they're fleeing from the Nazi government and we wouldn't be like, Oh, you illegal person. Like you recognize bad law. We need to protect you and I will hide you and protect you because of this bad law versus again, as we kind of hinted at the beginning, it seems like sometimes we just assume good laws, you broke it, you're illegal. And we stop there rather than doing what we've been trying to do in this conversation is look at the biblical approach, evaluate the laws and policies based on scripture and say, look, you're an image bearer of God and I need care for you. And the law is important. We don't throw it out, but reflect, take that reflection as well, which we would do in other situations, but sometimes we don't do in this one. Yeah. And you know, um, the example used of Nazi Germany, even though it's an extreme case, actually, because it's extreme, it kind of shows what we're trying to say, because in Nazi Germany, a large portion of the Protestant church and the Catholic church um, were compromised ideologically. And they went along with Hitler because of their German nationalism. Um, and then what you would have too, in terms of Lutheran theology is the two kingdoms. So there's what the government does and this is what the church does. And so we're not gonna get involved with what, the church, with what the government's doing. So you can see where if you begin to separate it so much, you give the government the excuse and the ability to do whatever it wants. And then if a certain portion of the Christian population actually supports the government because of its nationalism, it just puts you know, fuel to the fire. So Nazi Germany is an extreme case but the extreme case actually helps point out the very issue that we've been trying to get at, where we try to influence as Christians. And we have to be careful. And again, this is not just a U.S. thing. I've seen it all over the world. It's the most human thing in the world. You know, you don't want to change the way of life. And you're worried about people who speak another language and have a different culture. The wonderful thing about this country, Ryan, is that this country has had 250 years of migrants coming in. And so we absorbed them. See, my, my wife's mother was the daughter of German Catholic farmers in central Texas. My mother was a Guatemalan immigrant married to my father, who was the son of Irish immigrants. Okay, I mean, so we absorb all these people over time, but it can be a painful process. But even with Latinos or Hispanics, look at soccer. 40% <laughs> of your baseball players are Latinos. <laughs> the food, the food, the music, the movie stars. You can already begin to see the absorption happening. But it can be a very painful process. Yeah. 
That's good. Now I, I'm keeping you over time. You just said you could go a couple more minutes. So I want to be respectful of your time, but there was one more question that came in at least ahead of time. Sorry, there's a lot of live questions coming in. We just can't get to, but one question that came in ahead of time um, that I wanted to bring up because you talked about again of like the people that coming in, uh, even whether legally or whatever, they're undocumented, but they're staying and they're doing jobs that we need done. Um, and but we're not creating a system in which can bring them in legally to get those jobs done. And so a question came in, I think that really relates to that um, ahead of time on YouTube. And it said, um, uh, the question was, is the incentive of America reaping the benefits from cheap labor actually something unfair and abusive towards illegal immigrant workers? And so they use the term illegal there, but uh, is that abusive or is it saying, um, well, yeah, we're getting cheap labor, but we're helping you out. And so it's a win-win um, or, or is there a way in which you would want to see this changed? Well, I mean, you know, that's where the Christian thing comes into play, right? I mean, yeah. so uh, what's interesting in the Old Testament law, it says you will pay a foreigner on time and a just wage. Because the idea of taking advantage of the outsider is not something just in the U.S., Again, I've been I've been around the world. When I was in Argentina uh, a summer ago, not this last summer, but the summer before. Well, what's the cheap labor in Argentina? Well, there's people from Paraguay and Bolivia and Peru, uh, and they take advantage of. Them. So they give them less than minimum wage in this country. Oftentimes, uh, they have no, uh, you know, social security. What's interesting, Ryan, is you know I have friends who who undocumented and they work. And so the business will take out their, their Social Security and taxes. And what's, this is where you begin to see, you know, this is more complicated. The, the Social Security system in this country takes billions of dollars a year from the paychecks of undocumented immigrants. And the, those immigrants will never be able to make a claim for what's gone into Social Security in retirement or anything like that. They cannot. And one of the reasons, I had a friend, I have a friend, this would have been in Denver, and he had a business, undocumented, uh, a carpet cleaner. So I said, do you pay your taxes? He said, yes, I do. I said, oh, really? He said, how does that work? He said, well, the IRS gives me a tax number. Really? He said, yeah. I said, so why do you pay? He says, because of Romans 13, where it says to pay your taxes. So I'm paying my taxes. And I said, well, won't immigration know where you are? Because IRS knows where you are. And he said, no. And here's what happens, Ryan, is that the IRS will not talk to immigration services. They won't tell the immigration service where these people are because they need the money to keep the Social Security system functioning. They need the billions of dollars a year. See, So now you begin to see this is really pretty insidious, which you also, if you understand how things work in this country and around the world, a lot of your detention centers are privately run businesses. So what you find is that they will charge the government over $100 per day per head. So what you find then is detention centers are big business. So what you begin to see is this whole idea of taking advantage of undocumented, it's layer after layer after layer of injustice. And we wouldn't want the same if we were getting paid less than we are owed if things were being taken out, we'd never get to see them again. That we have no right to insurance. We have, my friend, I'm, I'm going too long here, but just give me a second. No, you're good, you're good. So my friend, his, his, 
his apartment and he had paid apartment insurance flooded because of something in Denver. Right now, he ends up being a carpet cleaner so he could kind of work on his own, right? To, his, to clean his, his apartment. But when he applied for his apartment insurance to pay, no. So he, he had been paying for years in the department, but because his social security number wasn't perfect, right? So when it came to paying to him after he paid for years was no. So you can't get car insurance. You can't get like apartment or house insurance. You can't get personal insurance. Okay. Now look at all the things that are being taken away from you because you're undocumented. And so that's why undocumented people go to emergency rooms because they're by law, they have to be treated. So, but if they could buy insurance, that would be a problem. Yeah. So you I can think, see just layer after layer after layer. Yeah. And I think that's where, like, in my mind, like, whoever's listening, like, no matter where you fall on this position, like, it, we should all be able to recognize the inconsistency. Like, whether you, like, no, they should uh, not be getting those services because they're here illegally and, and, and you want to fall on that side, well, then we shouldn't be taking their money. And if you say, no, they should be getting the services, they're paying for it. Like either way, like there's an inconsistency where it seems like, but what you're describing is that we're wanting the best of both worlds. We're wanting the, yeah. the cheaper labor. We're wanting to almost like, and as you mentioned, we're not paying this fair wage. We're wanting these things, but we're not willing yeah. to give up in return. And I have friends. I mean, you know, here's another, I was talking to one guy who does construction uh, and he handles like uh, tractors. Okay. And um, so he got hired and worked for, you know, a couple of weeks. And uh, the guy told him, you know, I'll pay you. So if you, you know, go to this corner at some such a time and some such day, I'll give you your money. Shows up, guy never comes. Okay. Two weeks of work, no pay. He has no one he can appeal to. Hmm. And so I said, you know, hermano, brother, I said, so how did you... What did you do? He says, this is where you can see the Christian. He goes, you know, we have never gone hungry. Hmm. That was his response. I mean, but that's the kind of thing that happens. Yeah. So what my mind jumps to in this and is that we often make the assumption that we'll hear these people coming in. Are they going to be following the laws? Are they going to be fair? Are they going to be, and a lot of focus is on them rather than sometimes flipping that back and saying, what are we doing? Are we being fair? Because again, those listening, like there's nothing more central to God is just and justice is central. And so we should desire true justice. And so we should require it on both sides. And when we see corruption happening, that needs to be called out wherever it, it is. But sometimes, again, like sometimes we focus more on the corruption of others, and this is just true, uh, than maybe our own corruption and being able to reflect that mirror back on us. And mm -hmm. wherever, again, you fall on this issue, hopefully seeing we, this can get better at least. You know, I remember sitting in a Hispanic church in Denver and the pastor talking about that they needed to follow and to stay in the speed limit. Okay. What, why? Well, because they didn't want to get pulled over, you know. Uh, and so, you know, you don't hear that kind of sermon from the pulpit of, a, of an Anglo church, you know. But this happened to my friend. I mean, he was coming home. It was his birthday. 
and he had just dropped off a fellow worker at a, at a van, and a policeman started following him. And it was pure racial profile. He just followed him for blocks, waiting for him to make a mistake. And he wouldn't because he knew what they were doing. So finally, the guy pulled him over anyway. And so his wife and, and three sons are waiting for him at home because it's his birthday. And he gets taken. So this was in Denver. He gets taken to Colorado Springs, which is you know 60 miles away because the detention center in Denver is full. And so you know, he phones his wife. They give him one phone call, phones his wife to tell him that he's in Colorado Springs in detention. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that goes on. Um, and there's, the, there's, there's a high incidence of alcoholism and drug abuse among immigrants. And you can begin to see why. Because the kids are afraid that dad's not coming home. Uh, going to get picked up, you know, all these kind of things. Um, and so I can go on and on. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic. It doesn't have to be. Well, I wish I could have you go on and on. Uh, there's just so many more questions that can be thought through and addressed here. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to take up all your time. And, and, and <laughs> so, um, what I will say then is this, uh, man, there's a lot of questions and I know you guys are interested and that's why these questions are coming in where we couldn't get to, uh, grab this book. Um, I think it's so helpful. Again, like we can disagree on, on some of the practical, but again, the question is, what are we coming back to? Are we saying this is the way it should be done because my political party says so? Uh, or are we convinced of scripture? Because obviously people have different interpretations of scripture, right? But the question is, are we doing our best to see what scripture has to say on this issue and then trying to faithfully apply it? That's the goal, to know and faithfully live out. And if we disagree on what scripture has to say on something that's not clear, okay, but I think that we're on the right track than saying, well, yeah. my president, my political party, my whatever has this position. And therefore, I, I take that without going back to what scripture has to say. So, Dr. Uh, Dr. Carol Rodas, thank you so much for taking this time, helping us recognize that need to think biblically about this and, and giving us some context for it. And again, people go pick up this book. It's wonderful. Um, and it's and it's short. It's an e it's good. It's an easy read. So thank you so much for taking this time. I know it's been a blessing. A lot of people are already commenting about uh, how good the conversation is. So thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. God's blessings on you and your work. I appreciate it. Thank you. So for those listening, thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you did not see it, the schedule is posted for the next four weeks. Next week is Free Will and Atheism with Tim Stratton. And then we got the Trinity with Fred Sanders and then finishing up with David French talking about his book, Divided We Fall and the, and, and the way that we need to come back together as a country. You can find more information on social media. Subscribe, share this with your friend if you've liked it. And just thank you so much for joining in this conversation. Again, my encouragement is for you to know Christianity deeply, be able to defend it, explain it clearly, and faithfully live it out the life that God has called you to live. And so I hope that this show has helped you to do that, as well as the other videos that pop up will help you to do that as well. So God bless. Continue to think deeply about Christianity, God, and Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Won't hesitate to follow